Hey everybody. So happy new year, right? This is the first Sunday. So, hold on, I better do this timer thing or we'll be here all day. Um, And we'll probably put up both sermons because I kind of preached a lot spontaneously last hour, and so the sermons will probably be quite different. So if you want to know what happened in the other service, we'll probably post that one too. Um, For the next four weeks, as a church, we're kind of going to go through um, a time of thinking about worship. And I'm going to preach about worship for four weeks. Um, the, the worship teams are going to be meeting my house on Wednesday nights And we're going to be talking about our theology of worship What do we believe about God in worship and what the Bible says And also what, what we believe about leading worship um, at High Point Part of the reason for that is a number of months ago we went to two services um, In fact, like 10 months ago <laughs> Or something like that now And one of the things we said at that time was that we were going to have two services And there would be different hours But they're also going to be slightly different stylistically and we realized that for about 10 months, we haven't done that. We've really had, we've had two services, but they weren't different stylistically. And uh, as the elders and I and the staff and I all have talked, we realized we really need to go back to the original plan and really do what we said we were going to do and talked about as a whole church about doing. And so this service, the 1045 service, is the one that was designed from the beginning to be that different, slightly different style. And so we're going to be talking about how um, everything that we do in terms of how we lead worship um, what is going to come from one theology and one set of convictions about God, who God is and who we are, but that, that, that whatever happens stylistically is flowing out of that same place so that we still have a real unity of who we are as a church and as people following Jesus together, even though there may be some differences in how we do things stylistically. Now, I should say this about worship. If you're the sort of person that is thinking about us, me preaching on worship for four weeks, finally, I like a good, systematic, biblical Theology about worship, you, you need to adjust your expectations down. Okay, if you want an awesome class level thing on worship, listen, the Trinity Extension campus starting January 18th is doing a class called Christian Worship. You should take it or audit it. It will be wonderful. You will enjoy it. You will get everything that you ever wanted out of these sermons in that class. Because I don't care about you, okay? If you're that person and you probably already come to church every week and you think it's important and whatever and you're committed, you're not, well, I'm not talking to you, okay? I love you, but, but you're, I'm not aiming at you, okay? Um, what I want to talk about for four weeks as a subset of worship is what are we doing here every Sunday morning? Why do we do church? What, why is this... One of the most predictable things that happens in the world every seven days. And and why do we get together and do essentially the same thing every week? We come together and we, we have a gathering that is essentially focused on four things. Expressing appreciation, love, and thankfulness towards God directly and usually singing in prayer, Right? Attentive reception of teaching The attentiveness isn't always the same every week But the but but a significant amount of time Is spent on teaching, right? I mean, I don't apologize for speaking Between 40 and 62 minutes Every week, seemingly Those of you who started coming the last five weeks Sorry, that's, that's reality here um, But the reason I don't apologize for that Is because it's one of the most important Things we do together as a church um, three, we, we do two rituals together That constantly lead us back to remember What God has done for us in Jesus Baptism and the Lord's Supper or Communion Both are remembering what Jesus did for every one of us And fourth, that we, we're here to strengthen each other We come here together to strengthen each other, right? Now, what I want to do over these next four weeks Is essentially, I want to try to persuade you That going to church Almost every Sunday for the rest of your life Is one of the most worthwhile repetitive endeavors you can possibly commit to I want to convince you or try to persuade you from The gospel and from the scriptures That you cannot hope to live a vibrant Christian life Aloof from the local church Of real people It's not meant to work that way And it really can't work that way 
I want to try to persuade you that the public discipline of belonging to a community of the church is more important for your transformation as a believer than anything else you can do. You see, as, as evangelicals, people who love the gospel and the Bible, a lot of times when we talk about personal transformation, what kind of disciplines do we refer to? We talk about the spiritual disciplines, and by that we also really mean the private disciplines. Right? Reading the Bible by ourselves, praying in our little prayer closets, and fasting by ourselves and, you know, being angry about being hungry. And those sorts of things, though, that's how you grow spiritually. But in the New Testament, that's not the assumption everywhere. Almost all of the assumptions in the New Testament about how people actually grow spiritually is focused on when Christians gather together for this thing called worship. And they encourage each other, and they praise God together, and they pray together, and they exhort one another, and they encourage one another, and they—that's where it seems to happen. And the whole New Testament seems to assume that. It's very easy for us to be like, you know, well, you grow when you read the Bible. You do grow when you read the Bible. That's absolutely true. One of the—a lot of the growth that's happened in my Christian life has come from privately reading the Bible. But but, but here's just a newsflash for some of us. How did the Christian religion survive for 1,500 years when nobody had a Bible? How did that work? And why in the first five centuries when there were virtually no Bibles because the Romans were burning all of them, was that also one of the maximal times of Christian martyrdom where people were willing to die for Jesus? How was that possible without a personal Bible study? And it's because the tactic of functional transformation that God created was not the private spiritual disciplines. Though those are really important and very helpful and increasingly important as we live in a more secularized culture— but it, it's, it was the—it's the gathered life of Christians together, specifically in the event of worshiping, that was designed by God to be the most transformative thing that happens to us. And that if you only do one thing, which I don't recommend, but if you only do one thing Christianly, it should be going to church. Um— I want to cover some different things over the next four weeks, but I want to start out with just um, acknowledging three, real, what I think are pretty important objections that people have to find the, the, these things that I've said I want to talk about credible. And here's the three things I want to acknowledge. Um, there, there's a few objections that people have that, where they, they find the claim the gathering together with other Christians to worship God together. So that's incredibly important. It's one of the most important and grounding and meaningful endeavors you can participate in, and that you can't live a fully vibrant Christian life the way God intended without it. There's, there's these three objections that I've had throughout my life. I think a lot of you have had, and there's a lot of people who aren't here who have them, and that's why they're not here, and I want you to know how to deconstruct them and try to explain them to people. And the first is the cynical skeptic Objection, and that is basically the idea that God really shouldn't be telling us to worship Him. That's really self-important, and it really um, speaks to the insecurity of God to feel like He has to tell us to worship Him, and He's going to do that. C.S. Lewis, in his atheist phase, um, talked about reading in his religious studies because he was in England, so he had to read the Bible, um, reading the reading the Psalms, and, and and running into all these commands to praise God as though God was constantly saying, "Praise me, praise me, worship me." And he said the image in my mind was like that of an old woman begging for compliments. And so for a lot of us, the idea that it's extremely important to come together and worship God just sounds like a God that's really ugly, that's not very godish, and is not very good either because morally he's just full of insecurity and, um, and domineering and all that kind of thing. So there's that objection. I'll just call that this, this, the cynical skeptic objection. The second is the misguided spirituality objection. And this is the, this is the, the feeling that, well, isn't God everywhere? I mean, God is omnipresent, right? And doesn't it say in the Bible in a number of places um, that whatever we do, whether it's eating or drinking, we should do it for the glory of God, meaning that, that I can worship God at Culver's, right? I mean, so why is it so critical? I mean, if, if it's true that the, the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and if God is everywhere present, and if I can do everything I do to the glory of God, then, then why on earth do I need to come here to do it? I mean, I can just— I can worship God anywhere, doing anything. So why do I have to come here and sing? I hate singing, right? Or, I mean, not everybody feels that way, but some people feel that way. And that matters, right? And is that right? 
that's, it's about 30% right. It's, there's some, something really true about it, and it's also extremely scripturally misguided. And then the third one is the, the cautious, and I just call this the cautious investor, investor objection. And that is, Nick, I don't know if you've realized this, but Sunday is actually a day off. And it often happens on days that are sunny, or that there are sales, or that um, I could sleep, and, or on days where there are football games. And you just mercilessly preach beyond 12 o'clock or whatever drive time I need to get home to watch the kickoff. And, you know, not all of us go to the Flatmires to watch it on delay. So, you know, you need to realize that asking me to invest um, 90 minutes to three hours every Sunday morning, including all the getting people awake, feeding them, getting them in the car, and getting here, and all that stuff that goes along with it, plus having to actually be around people when I have to be around people at work all week, and all that other stuff, when I could be doing whatever I want to do, that's a lot of investment. You're talking about like a half of a day of a seventh of my life. You're talking about like a fourteenth of my life. How can that possibly be worth it, right? How can that possibly be worth it? Now there's a fourth objection I don't want to talk about now, which is, isn't what we do kind of hokey? Like, why do we get together and have a sing-along? But I'll deal with that on week three. Okay, and so here's what I want to say about those objections. I'm going to deal with them as I go over the next four weeks. I know they're in your mind. I know they're in the minds of your friends. And I'm going to talk about them. I know they're important. But you've got to hang with me to get answers to them, okay? All right, sweet. Hopefully that'll work. So this morning, what I want to, I want to try to come after is, is this idea that worship— that is expressing appreciation, love, thankfulness toward God, specifically, is the most truthful thing that you can do and the most needful thing for you. The most. That worshiping God, and by that I don't mean eating at Culver's and thinking about Jesus while you do it. I mean literally coming into a place together with other people and expressing in words, in prayers, in thought, in mind, in body, devotion towards God, who you can't see, touch, or feel. But that you, your identity is in Him, you love Him, you appreciate many of His qualities and characteristics and character, that you are thankful for what He's done, and that you express that. That that is the most truthful action and the most needful action for all of us. Um, and I want to I basically say three things. I want to say, one, that devotion is really important. Secondly, that that devotion is right. That is, it is good. And that that devotion is beneficial. That is, it's extremely good for us in ways that we usually overlook. Because remember, Christians believe in the sinful nature. That is, that we are sinful, and that sinfulness has affected the way we think. And so, in relationship to reality, we're delusional. And so, many of the things that are true, we don't see. And so, therefore, if we don't see the ultimate kingship of God, many things related to God's rulership over our lives and the benefits that come to us from that, we won't see. And we'll be constantly forgetting. So, let me go through those in order as fast as I can without speaking fast. The first is that we should be lo lovingly devoted to God. The Bible says that all the way from beginning to end. The Bible doesn't claim that we should have some religious duties. It says that God is, God is the center of reality. He is the all-existing one. He is our creator, and we are—our identity is that we belong to him, that he loves us, and we should love him back. And so at the very beginning of God's working among a people, he started to gather for himself. Is this place in Deuteronomy at the very beginning of the Bible? And people think, oh, those first books of the Bible, they're just all commandments, right? And there's a lot of commandments in there. But listen to how it starts. He says, hear, O Israel, meaning these are the people, God's people, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. You see that? Like a lot of times we think about— it's very easy to think that, like, 
in somehow in the old world, back in the ancient times, they didn't believe in love. It was just all being big and mean and beating kids and stuff. And, you know, and now, you know, ever since whatever happened, we're loving and wonderful people. But 3,000 years ago, God spoke about what it was going to mean to relate to him. And he said, God is God. And you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the commandments he gives you, which is an expression of what it means to love him, they should be on your hearts. It shouldn't just be written in your churches or in your little Bibles, or in, but they sh- those commandments should be on your hearts. Now that may sound oppressive. You may be like, well, commandments? I, I don't see how that has to do with worship and love. Well, one of the things that drives me nuts about being married to a woman <laughs> is that when, when things come around where you're traditionally supposed to buy women things, like birthdays, anniversaries, Christmas, things like that, I really do not know what to get her. I have—I mean, and, you know, we're middle class. We have most of what we need, and my wife's not a big wanter. She's a first child, and I just—I don't know what to get that woman, okay? And every—it's every year, it's like I'm trying to get her something else. It's like—and I wish that, that I was—it was obvious— and it's not, right? And it's frustrating. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about Scripture. God, is, God doesn't do that to us. He's, he says, I love you. You should love me. And here's exactly how to do it. There's no question. There's no question about wondering what to do to love God. God is extremely specific, very clear, gives many opportunities, tons of options, piles of opportunities to obey any one of many commandments that we could obey and live out and express in devotion to him, and we would know that we were doing something that was an expression of love, that was an expression of love to him. I love that about God. And it, you see, sometimes there's some things that, that sound nasty, but if you change your attitude about it a little bit, it changes how it sounds a lot. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus was asked, okay, there's all, the, there's like five books of laws in the Old Testament. Jesus, what's the most important? And he was asked that by a religious teacher, and he said, here's the most important one. He said, the Lord your God is one. He quotes this passage, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Right? Now, what that means is that when we talk about worship, it has to start with the fact that we've got an identity. It doesn't start with an action. It starts with an identity. We belong to God, right? If we've come to Jesus, we belong to God, and we love him. We love God. And how does that come out, right? And, it, and so you can talk about worship in two ways. And this is where you get that second objection confusion of, can I just worship God anywhere? There's general worship, that is, your whole life. Or what the Old Testament or New Testament calls obedience or being faithful, right? That is, general worship is just the fact that you acknowledge God's worth, right? Where do we get the word worship, right? Worth. So general worship is the fact that in everything that we do, we acknowledge God's worth. So I'm having an argument with my wife, and I don't yell at her and say, well, you always say it and say this, and you're always doing it, right? I don't blow the argument up into a fight. Well, why don't I blow the argument up to fight when, it could, when it's to my tactical advantage? Well, if I don't, it, the reason might be that I believe that, that that moment belongs to God. My marriage belongs to God. My wife belongs to God. I dare not treat her that way. I belong to God. I dare not deceive myself and turn myself towards damnation that way. I dare not, right? That God is king. And if God is king in that argument, God is king in that argument. And so I have only a limited number of options, to make myself known, right? Because that moment belongs to God. Same thing when I spend my money or my—all of it exists acknowledging Jesus, right? General worship, obedience. But that's not the same thing as specific worship. That is actually expressing appreciation for, love to, and thankfulness about his actions toward God. I mean, that makes about as much sense as saying— because I'm married to my wife, and I told her I loved her on our wedding day, 
sort of because I made a vow, and I've stayed with her, she ought to know I love her. I mean, or it's—have I mean, you read the book? Have you, if you've read the book, The Five Love Languages, you familiar with this book? The Five—most people haven't read it. They've just read the, like, one-page version online, right? Which is this people give and receive love in different ways psychologically, right? So there's—I won't get these all, right? So there's physical touch, there's— um, words of encouragement, gift-giving, quality time, and acts of service, I think, are the five love languages, right? And so some people l- really like it when people tell them encouraging things or affirm them verbally. And I don't. I like to be given things, personally. And, and, and acts, acts of service are, is like, my, I like, I love it. When my wife does stuff for me, that, that speaks to me. And when people say nice things about me, I just say, well, obviously that's true, but it doesn't really do anything for me. So, um, and so for, you see, for some people, this is the thing that you get into about worship. You see, for some people, musical worship, like singing, makes perfect sense to them. Because they like quality time, they like words of affirmation, they like giving words of affirmation, because they like receiving words of affirmation. So the idea that we would sing a bunch of, bunch of words of affirmation towards God, that just totally clicks with them. And so they come in, they sing, and they wish there was 50 minutes of music, you know? And then there's other people who like, their love language is like acts of service, and they're just like, they hate, and they hate music. And, and three minutes of music is too much for them, you know? And, th- and, and those people are different, right? But does that mean somebody like me, who my love language is acts of service, does that mean I am off the hook from telling my wife that she's fabulous in whatever ways she might be? Of course not. And it's not because my wife needs to hear it. It's because it's true and I should say it. Because... The, you, you and I, like, I love that, that book. It helps people. But the problem is that the reason why I have particular love languages is because I am an unbalanced human. And I, and my wife and I can accept that about each other, and we can focus on what we're good at and work with our love languages. But the fact is that if I was a fully balanced human, I would realize that all of those ways are good ways to give and receive love. All of them are fundamentally truthful ways to give and receive love. And all of them do something good in me and good in the object they're given to if we both appreciate them, and we should. So the fact that I don't necessarily care about words of affirmation nor care to give them, the fact is they matter. Because if I say to my wife— We've been married 15 years, and I have done one load of laundry in 15 years. And I think I filled one bottle with four children. That is amazing. I mean, it's just—it's just beyond—it's just a fact, right? My wife is a trooper. That's probably morally wrong for me to be treated that way. But I should—I'm still very appreciative of that, and I should say that. I shouldn't just— put my laundry away when she puts it on my dresser to show her. I should tell her, right? Well, but I don't, I don't connect with that. Well, I need it. I need to make it come out of my mouth. Like, for example, why do you tell your, why do you make your kid apologize if you have one? Or why did your parents, if they were good parents, make you apologize? Because, if they did it for the right reason, because the apology needs to come out of your mouth. That does something to you. You see, if you just say, if, if I, you know, like, I'll have these arguments with my firstborn, who's the, the stubborn one, and her mother had nicknamed the mule when she was a kid, but I have no idea why my daughter's stubborn. Um, and so we'll have this argument about how she's behaving, and it's mostly one-sided, and I'll be like, I'll be like, Abby, you need to apologize. You're, I mean, you're, are you wrong? Yes. All right, well, you need to apologize. I'm sorry. I don't believe your apology. Try again. I'm sorry, Daddy. I don't believe that one either. That was closer, though. <laughs> Try again. I think I need a little time, Daddy. All right, I'll come back in 20 minutes. I mean, that's kind of how it rolls. But usually, for one of the things I love about Abby is you, sometimes it's the next day. But she will come back, and sometimes she will be crying, and sometimes she will just—you will see it different on her face. And she'll go— Daddy, I'm really sorry. I was being really selfish. And the reason why, as a parent, I push for that. I try to do it lovingly. I try to do it whatever. But the reason why I make her do it is because it's important for her to make those words come out of her mouth from the right place in her heart. She needs it. Right? Just like I don't care about words of affirmation, but I need to give them. 
because it makes me a different kind of person. It reminds me of certain kinds of things. It makes me thankful. For me to say to my wife, I cannot believe you've done this for me all these years. I am so thankful. It does something for me. If I say it sincerely, it's making me a more thankful person. That is important for me because I'm not a naturally thankful person, right? Just like you, we have this thing called sin, right? The flesh inside of us. We got And so how do you kill it? I mean, the Bible says you're supposed to kill the flesh, right? John Owen said either you're killing the flesh or the flesh is killing you. How do you kill the flesh? This is one of the ways. This is one of the ways. And when it comes to expressing affirmation or thankfulness toward God, one of the reasons why that is so important is because it is taking us out of the place of being idolaters— to the place of acknowledging that God is God. We need to make it come out of our mouths. And we are the sort of creatures that we can't just sort of think it and think that's going to change us. It doesn't change us. All right, I'm going to skip some stuff. If you want to hear it, you have to listen to the recording online of the first service. The second thing is that the, the devotion to God is Right? Um, And this gets back a little bit to that C.S. Lewis Objection that God's saying you should you need to worship me You need to get together in a group and you need to worship me That that's that feels kind of like an old woman begging for compliments and That comes from a, a fairly basic moral confusion that we have about roles and about worth because The reason why it's right to worship God is because God is the object of ultimate worth. The reason why you and I should love God with our whole hearts, all our strength, all our mind, is because God is the most lovely thing that there is. The reason reason why God deserves our worship is because God is the most deserving of worship. Now, you might say, okay, well, wait, wait a second, Nick. The whole, that, uh, you, you lost me on the love bit there because this is Christianity. I mean, our, this, isn't this the religion where we love all the unlovely things and all that kind of thing? I mean, that's, that doesn't sound like your logic is working. Well, okay, that's because you misunderstand what love is. Um, the re- why, do we, why are we called to love unlovely people or unlovely things as Christians? Right? It's, it's not because the thing is unlovely. Right? The reason why we love people who are very unlovely is because the ultimately lovely one first loved us. And the fact that he loved us, that he issued forth something called benevolence or compassion or grace— and that he was merciful towards us, not only is he maximally lovely lovely and loving, but his action toward us is so loving that the beauty of that action and being motivates a replication of that in us towards another object. And so we love unlovely people because God first loved us when when we and remain and still are very unlovely. And so the, the reason why we say, okay, this person who I don't really necessarily want to love, it's I must love them, is because A, they bear God's image to some degree. And to the extent to which we can see it in Christ, and we know that that's in there, they have that inherent worth, which is not their unloveliness. It's something else that they still possess as a human being. In some sense, they bear the beauty of God. And then secondly— Because we're so moved by the beauty of the action God took towards us. And so in Christian love, even when as Christians we love things that are unlovely, it is not because they're unlovely. It's because we are loving something that's maximally beautiful, namely God and God's expression of love towards us. The fact that we're unlovely only by contrast maximizes the beauty of God's love, which is basic art, right? Contrast. And then that turns us to love others. But you see, even when we are loving the most unlovely thing we can possibly imagine, we are still doing it because we are 
we are drawn not to that which is unlovely, but because we were drawn to something that was incredibly beautiful. And so when we think about God saying that we should worship him, it's because he, he should and he must command us to worship him. Think about the, uh, the Lewis statement where he said, you know, when God said, praise me, praise me, that just sounds like an old woman begging for compliments. Now, the way Lewis handled that was to say, and this is in the book Reflection on the Psalms, he says, yes, but what I found out later was that praise is the completion of all pleasure. That whenever we like something, we praise it, and we praise it to other people, and it comes out of our mouth, and that, and we enjoy praising things. And so when God demands we praise him, he essentially is commanding us to do something that is fundamentally pleasurable. That is, he's commanding us to something wonderfully good that when we do it, we find that it's enjoyable, and so he's doing something fundamentally good for us. Okay, that's great, but still, where does he get off doing it, right? I mean, that's the, the objection. And on some ways, uh, okay, fine, but, but then he should invite us to it. He shouldn't command us to it. But you see, that gets back to the, to the problem. He has to command us to it because, you see, you and I are obligated to feel rightly about things. Because how we feel about things is an expression about what we believe the ultimate reality of those things actually are. Right? If you thought something was beautiful that was morally repugnant, like if you looked at a, if you looked at a video of a massacre of human beings, a genocide in progress, people killing people, and you said, that's sublimely gorgeous. Would your feeling be wrong morally? Well, feelings can't be wrong. They're just feelings. No, no. No. Your feeling would be morally wrong and aesthetically ugly because your feeling didn't properly appreciate the thing that was happening. What's happening inside you in terms of reality was not coherent with the thing that was happening. Our inner lives of emotions are obligated to be in right relationship with reality. So if something is amazing and should produce joy in us, it should Meaning, morally, it should produce joy in us. If something is given to us, we should feel thankful. I mean, why do we tell our kids when somebody else gives them a gift, say thank you? Partly so that we're less embarrassed, right? But part of it is that it's embarrassing to us when our kid is given something and they're not thankful. Why? Because it means there's something wrong with our child. That's why. It means that an emotionally healthy person, rightly connected to reality, when they are given something, they naturally and spontaneously feel the emotion of thankfulness. And when they don't, it means they are broken and they are rebellious against reality. And that's what sin is. God creates reality. He calls us to live in accord with reality, with him as king of it. And sin is when we say, no, something else is real, and I'm going to live in a, and feel and act in accordance with that. And so when God says, worship me, it's not because he's some kind of self-important, insecure monarch. It's because that is the emotionally right thing to do. And when somebody is in charge, they're supposed to command the emotionally right thing to do. It's their job to. I mean, think about the old woman thing. Isn't that that just metaphor indulgence? Why an old woman? Right? It's, it creates the mental picture of somebody who's preposterous, insecure, and probably doesn't deserve the compliments. But what if you switch the metaphor? What if it's a general telling a private he has to salute? The whole thing changes. You, all you did was change the metaphor. Because you see, in the new metaphor— the person who's in charge has rightful authority, and they deserve the respect. So if you've got a general who's a war veteran, who's the general? Is, and, the, and the private is like, I'm not going to salute. Is it, is it morally beautiful for the general to say, well, don't worry about saluting. I'm not self-important. No, because it's his job to make sure respect is properly given. I mean, why, why, do, why do we care as parents, if we're parents, that our children show us proper respect? Is it simply because we're self-important? No. It's, it, it may be that. We may feel self-important sometimes, but the reason why it is our job or our role to make sure our children respect us and other adults is because if they don't, they are morally and spiritually and emotionally broken. 
They are not rightly connected to reality. They don't realize there is authority. Respect should be given to people who have certain responsibility. We should understand our roles in relationship to each other. Those things are fundamentally, supremely important if we're going to live together in a community that's woven together in love and beauty. And if they don't see that, and if they won't live in accord with it, it's our job to make it happen. That's why parenting is hard. Otherwise, parenting wouldn't be hard. But if, if as a parent, if you watch another parent when their kid is very disrespectful towards you, if you watch another parent just go, what, oh yeah, you know, he didn't get enough sleep last night. Does that, I mean, on one level, yeah, it, it might bother you because, you know, you're an adult and you should be shown respect. And, and on some level, maybe that's self-important. Maybe it's not. But on, on one level, your heart should go out to the kid. Right? And to the parent. Be- and it's not, it's not because kids are supposed to be perfect all the time, because we were made to live in right relationship to reality. And when right relationship to reality can be discerned, the person who is rightfully in charge must command that we do it. And if God is in charge of all reality, and he is the object of supreme worth, God cannot morally not command worship. And it is a moral good that he does command it. And now you might say, well, but Nick, you know, maybe that God doesn't—that's a different conversation. That's a perfectly valid conversation, but it's a different one. If you grant the Christian premise that God exists, God is maximally good and maximally, maximally morally beautiful and truthful, like Scripture says he is, then if you grant that premise, it follows— He must and should, and it is a loving and right action for him to command us to worship him with all of our hearts. And we should. And one of the ways we know and can know that we can love him with full devotion, with all of our heart, with full expression, with all our soul, with energetic participation with all of our strength or with deep contemplation with all of our mind, right? Like Jesus said. The reason we can know that it's not him being mean is because as, we, as you really go through and study scripture, what we begin to find is it's also to our immense benefit. God doesn't just do it because he can or even just because he should. But out of love, God has put together the true and right moral demand of reality with the thing that is maximally beneficial and good and joy-bringing for us if we will accept, submit to, and embrace it. And so the, the third thing I think to get into this is we have to recognize that devotion to God is beneficial. Now, it's really dangerous to talk about this because— um, because once you begin to learn about why worship is beneficial, you have to promptly forget it when you're worshiping. If you haven't read C.S. Lewis's essay, First and Second Things, you really should, because essentially what he argues is this, but you should still read the essay, that there are some things that are intrinsically good and we should do them because they're good, right? So should we love, love people? Yes. Should we do it because of what it's going to do for us? No, love is intrinsically good. It's intrinsically good. Should you be polite to people you've never met? Yes. Why? Because you might get something out of it? No, no. It's intrinsically good to be polite to people because people are made in the image of God. They deserve our kindness. So it's intrinsically good to be good to people. Now, will you get something out of it if you are consistently polite to people you don't know? Of course you will. Of course you will. But if you do it for that reason, you destroy the integrity of your politeness. Like, how many—have you met people that were polite to you, but you knew it was for some reason other than just that they valued you as a human being? That's it. Of course you do. Of course you do. Unless you're very unsophisticated. And did those—did you appreciate those people's politeness of you? Probably not. Right? There, there are many things that are good in and of themselves. And when we do them for that reason— other secondary good things attend on them when we get those things for free. But the minute you do that primary thing because you're going to get the secondary thing, you destroy the primary thing and the secondary thing. For example, if I get married so that I will be loved and then I have children so that I can feel fulfilled, what's going to happen? I'm probably going to be divorced and my kids are probably going to hate me, right? Right? 
Yes. The answer is yes. Because what happens when I have a bad year with my spouse? What's going to drive me back to her? Not my idiot spouse, right? I, that's, I hate her, right? So what, how does this come back together? Well, it only comes back together if I intrinsically believe in marriage and the God of marriage. If I int- believe in the intrinsic good of two people working it out and being there for each other and getting over hating each other and all of that, that that's intrinsically good, ordained by God and, and, and regulated by his commandments, as it says in the marriage ceremony, then I can figure out a way to go back towards my wife, right? That's, and that's happened in my marriage. But, and with my kids, if I have kids simply to pass on life, that life is a gift— And I can choose to pass on that gift of life to another human being and give it to them to use it for whatever they will. And I can lead them to use it for something good and noble, but they will have to choose how that happens, how it works out, what they pick. I I don't know what it's going to be, but it's not, doesn't exist for my fulfillment. I give it as a gift and they use it for the purposes of God, not my purposes, right? That's why we find it, even non-Christians find it repugnant when parents try to make their kids in their own image. But yet we do it with our own kids without seeing it. But we can look at another family and be like, your kid doesn't want to play soccer. Because the idolatry of seeking fulfillment through our kids always creeps in. Why? Because we're idolaters. That's why we need worship. Back to the point one number one. But you see, if we have to do things for the right reason, so it's dangerous to say, oh, worship has these benefits. Worship does have lots of benefits because God is loving and wonderful. And it's sometimes good for us to know them so we can say, oh, I really need to be part of worship. And then you need to forget them when you go into worship. Because if you bring them into worship with you, you will destroy worship. And it will neither honor God, it will neither be right, nor will it be beneficial. You'll be like the person who goes to the soup kitchen because you heard serving other people makes you happy, and you're not happy. And it's because you didn't go to serve the people. You went to be happy. And when you go to be happy to serve people, it destroys both things. The people know you didn't care about them, and you're not happy. First and second things, read it. Okay. So here, let me give you just a few things that worship does. And this could be a very long list, and it'll be part of another sermon, but I want to sort of prime the pump a little bit. Um, One is, worship has two feedback loops that are really beneficial. One is a devotion feedback loop. What do you do if you don't really like God? And you see, worship creates, a, drops you into a feedback loop of appreciation and devotion. See, to worship forces you to engage with the act of appreciating God. It's kind of like, it's kind of like going to counseling with a spouse you hate, right? It, the idea is to force you to relate to them until you realize why you started relating to them in the first place, right? I remember when Lex and I had this terrible year of marriage, and the, our, our counselor said, have lunch together for 40 minutes each week and just talk to each other. And that was all it really took for us. It was kind of, I mean, probably the easiest counseling ever done. But I, I mean, it was, it was, it was that all we had to do was start talking to each other. After a while, we realized why we liked each other in the first place, and we were in this feedback loop of love and devotion towards each other. Worship forces us to appreciate God. Appreciation leads to devotion. Devotion leads to more appreciation. Appreciation leads to devotion. Devotion leads to more appreciation. It creates a loop of devotion towards God that we should have, but worship is often necessary to drop us into it. Same thing with happiness. The most, the most common and most predictable um, way people are happy is, is when people are thankful. Thankful people are just always happier people. And people who are unthankful aren't happy people. And, here, and, and thankful, see, thankful people, part of that is just acknowledging that you're not God and that there isn't a whole lot the universe should give you that it didn't give you, and so you're angry. And you see, when we go to worship, what is one of the first things we do? It's to get back into a place where God is God, I'm not, and I'm thankful towards God for what he did for me, namely in Christ. And if he never did anything else for me for the rest of eternity, what he has already accomplished for me in Christ is enough for me to be eternally thankful. And so it takes us from wherever we were in terms of our entitlement and our anger and whatever, and it drops us back into thankfulness. And thankfulness leads to happiness. And happy people, guess what, they're, guess what they are? They're more thankful. And guess what people who are more thankful are? More happy. And they're more thankful. But what happens when you fall out of that loop? What happens when you fall out of the feedback loop of thankfulness and happiness? How do you get back in it? Worship. Worship does it. Oh, wait, you're not God. God is God. You should be thankful for him. Oh, look, I'm being thankful. Oh, wait, my life isn't bad after all, and God is amazing, and oh, look, why am I feeling happy? And I should be thankful, and look, I'm happy, and 
And worship is one of the most powerful things to put us back into that loop that leads to happiness. Because God cares about your happiness. But he cares more about your holiness because he knows if he gets you to desire holiness, he'll get both. You'll be both holy and happy. So you'll be eternally happy. It refocuses our minds. You know, when we do things out in the world, it's very difficult to know why we're doing them, really. You know, you do something for somebody who can sort of do something for you. There's most of the things that we do in life, we have a mixture of reasons why we're doing them, and we don't really know why we're doing it. But when you come to worship, there's nothing else there. You're either worshiping God or you're not. And if you have some other bad reason why you're doing it, usually you'll know it. Other people can accuse you of being a hypocrite, and you might be being a hypocrite. But if you actually enter into worship when you're being a hypocrite, you'll probably know. And sometimes, I've, heard, I've talked to lots of people who have, who have found this enormous place of hypocrisy or willfulness or lostness in their life when they open themselves up to worship God. And then they realized it wasn't working, and they were like, well, why isn't it working? It's because, well, I'm not really worshiping. So wait a second, that means I think I'm the most important thing. And wait, that means— And that led to a train of thought that brought them back around to the Savior. The same thing is true of um, creating a conscious moment before God. One of the things that Lewis says in Screwtape Letters, there's this demon talking, and he's talking to another demon about killing a human. And he says, one of the things you need to know about human beings is even the saved ones, even the ones that say they love Jesus, they don't really want to be just in God's presence because they're terrified of it. They're terrified of what he might say to them or what they might think or what they might learn or what—of how he may strip them down to that spiritual death that really leads to life. They're terrified of it. And you see, when when we worship God at Culver's and we eat, you know, curly fries of the glory of God, we are not alone before God in our consciousness in a way that we are stripped bare and we know who we really are before him. That doesn't happen then. That does happen oftentimes when we come and we really engage in worship when we are in a place where we are expressing our devotion and love for God, we become alone with God and exposed before him in a way that a lot of the things that all of the rest of our lives would allow us us to be distracted from come to the surface and he can deal with them. And for, for many things, that will really only happen in worship. There's, okay, so there's a lot more that can be said about this, but let's just stop with that. And, and let me say this. We, for the most part, have no idea the potential of this moment every week. We walk in and out of it kind of dazed and confused, sort of asleep in a way. Because it's so normal, it's so repetitive, we're all just kind of normal people. The community's so imperfect. There's so much potential we know isn't mad. It's not all that different than a lot of other things we do. It's people wearing clothes, walking around, talking, and whatever. And so there's a sense in which we can just very easily pass in and out of it. And there's a sense in which we can just take it or leave it, too. But we, it, it starts with the fact that Jesus believes in this thing. I, I remember when I was 19, I was in church, and it was so boring. I mean, just like how some of you feel right now, probably. And I was so angry because I thought, I remember thinking this. I remember right where I was sitting when I thought this. I could go up there right now with no prep at 19 and preach better than this guy. And I know know that sounds arrogant because it is. I was 19. Remember, listen to the story. And, um, but I was so angry at what church was. And for a lot of my peers, it caused them to leave the church. They're just like, I'm not going. Even though they felt like they liked God, that they believed in Jesus. But I, uh, Jesus, I kept reading my Bible, and Jesus thinks this is incredibly important. So I gave my life to it. And I'm encouraging you to give a couple hours a week for most of the rest of your life to it. Not because you can see how worthwhile it is, but because the Savior says it's worthwhile and, and, and because Scripture teaches that if you will engage in it, and if you will, instead of saying, well, I don't like it, so I'm going to leave, instead of saying, I don't like it, so I'm going to be more 
I'm going to be more engaged, and I want to raise the bar, and I want, I want to see us get all that we can out of this so that what happens in here, we really go out there and live all of our life for the increased reputation of God among all people. That, that's suppo- that really is supposed to start right here. And, if, and part of the reason why we don't always feel it is because, man, most of us aren't even here. I mean, up here at least. And that can change. But it changes with a conviction, and it changes when we come and we worship. Because worship will lead us to worship. And faith is always like this. You've got to trust and act and see. So let me challenge you. Do it for three more weeks. Come three more weeks. Hear it out for a month on this. And for the next three or four minutes, let's really sing. Not because you like singing out loud. You might think it's a hokey sing-along and think it's really dumb. But do it because you know we need it. You need to make these words come out of your mouth if you believe in Jesus. And you can say them honestly. You ne- it do- it'll do something to you over time. So let me pray and then let's sing and then you think about that challenge. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us to be a people that come again and again back to the first thing, the first, first thing, that is that you are king over all things and that all things take their weight and are supported by you and that therefore us coming to a place very regularly where we remember that and where that changes us really deeply and then through that we get to enjoy all the benefits you meant for us to have through it and in a way in which you are rightly enjoyed and glorified and that we are rightfully thankful towards you. Father, we really want that. We believe that, um, that Scripture teaches us that almost everything good that's meant to come from our life starts with us acknowledging you for who you are and that you have ordained this gathering for specifically that. So help us to do that for the next few minutes here. Help us to rightly acknowledge who you are, whether we like singing or not. And help us to commit to spending a few weeks trying to come to a realization of how important this totally mundane thing that we do each week is. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.